Good evening and welcome to the first lecture of week one of Rare Book School Summer Session 1999. On Wednesday of this week, Sue Allen, who is in residence this week teaching, will be lecturing on the uh, bookbinding designs of Sarah Whitman in 201 Clemens Library because she's using slides. And on Thursday, I will be meditating on the past 10 years of the Book Arts Press and its cottage industries from this podium. Both of those are at 6 o'clock, and you are all very welcome to them all. There will be lectures on Monday and Wednesday throughout the four weeks of Rare Book School, and something resembling a repeat of my Thursday lecture on each of the four Thursdays. The locals know to come to the last one where I have had four chances to get it right or at least better. Our lecturer this evening has been st speaking annually in Rare Book School since 1927. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to this podium, uh, G. Thomas Tansel, speaking on uh, the foundations of analytical bibliography. Thank you, Terry. <clears throat> It's always a pleasure to return to Rare Book School, though I didn't realize I had done it quite that often. In April 1870, Henry Bradshaw, librarian of Cambridge University, published a little pamphlet entitled A Classified Index of the 15th Century Books in the Collection of M.J. De Meyer. Despite this unpromising title, it deserves to be considered a landmark in intellectual history. Indeed, as far as bibliographical scholarship is concerned, one of the greatest of landmarks. For it contains a passage of major significance emphasizing the importance of systematically examining the physical evidence in printed books. Bradshaw insisted that arranging early books according to the locations and presses where they were printed was the only method whereby knowledge of early printing would be advanced, since it provides a basis for identifying or dating books that do not readily proclaim their origins. The most famous part of this passage reads as follows. Each press must be looked upon as a genus and each book as a species and our business is to trace the more or less close connection of the different members of the family according to the characters which they present to our observation. The study of paleotypography has been hitherto mainly such a dilettante matter that people have shrunk from going into such details, though when once studied as a branch of natural history, it is as fruitful in interesting results as most subjects. Bradshaw had made earlier comments that imply this point of view, going back at least to his letters to William Blades a decade earlier. But this passage gains its landmark status by being the first published rationale of bibliographical methodology, explicitly envisaging a whole field of endeavor from the person who was more responsible than any other for setting in motion what Stanley Morrison called the bibliographical revolution. That revolution consisted of a gradual growth in understanding of the ways in which the physical evidence in books provides a powerful tool for historical investigation and is relevant to reading the texts contained in books. In fact, this revolution is still in progress, for the significance of books as physical objects has proved to be a difficult concept for people to grasp. Books, both manuscript and printed, have always seemed to be in a class apart from other objects because they contain words that supposedly speak to us more directly uh, than do the physical details. We read the texts and pay little attention, or assume we are paying little attention, to the physical characteristics, believing that any other container would serve as well to contain the text. Of course, most people can readily understand, if they have any occasion for thinking about the matter, that books, like all other objects, must bear some traces of how they were produced and how they were treated after production. But even historically-minded readers, including literary scholars, 
have generally not been interested in pursuing such history, apparently believing, along with the less historically minded, that the utilitarian container has no direct relevance to or effect on the contents. The fundamental fact that underlies this situation is the intangibility of language. Readers understand this fact intuitively since they know that a verbal work can exist or be recreated simultaneously in multiple locations whenever its words are brought together in physical or oral form. They consequently tend to denigrate the vehicle that in any given instance transports those words. It is this nearly universal predisposition of readers, whatever their level of sophistication, that made the bibliographical revolution so long in coming and still makes its progress so slow. But the movement itself and the results it has achieved in its first century and a half form one of the fascinating stories of recent intellectual history, a chapter in our developing understanding of our artifactual environment. The revolution is really a change in our way of thinking about the physical objects called books. And Bradshaw's thinking was formative in this process because he not only understood that physical details in books have their own stories to tell, but also saw that those stories are relevant to a study of the texts in the books. It would be extravagant, however, to claim that Bradshaw was the first person to display any recognition of either of these points. In 1715, for example, Thomas Bennett published an essay on the 39 Articles of Religion, which remarkably uses evidence of broken type and distinctive spacing in eight copies of the 1571 Articles to determine whether textually variant copies are from the same or different typesettings. Another more direct precursor of Bradshaw was Joseph Ames, whose typographical antiquities of 1749 made typographical analysis the basis for dating and identifying the printers of undated or unsigned uh, incunabula. In their different ways, Bennett and Ames can both be seen as emblematic of a general movement away from impressionistic antiquarianism and toward systematic scholarship, a movement that was gradually affecting the examination of artifacts of all kinds. Yet Bennett's concentration on a 16th century book and his textual orientation made him appear an isolated forerunner of the so-called new bibliographers of the early 20th century. Whereas Ames's concern with arranging 15th century books by printer places him directly in a line that stretches internationally through the 18th century from Mater to Panzer. Book collectors in the 18th century also paid a considerable attention to the physical aspect of books, though their goal was not likely to be systematic study. But by the early 19th century, even the most voluble exponent of that era's bibliomania, Thomas Frognall Dibden, showed a serious interest in the typography of Incunabula through his expanded edition of Ames's work. And Thomas Hartwell Horn, another writer stimulated by the bibliophilic euphoria following the Roxborough sale, produced in 1814 an introduction to the study of bibliography which showed some awareness of the relevance of bibliographical evidence, including watermarks, to an interest in the content of books. If these various writings and a few other similar efforts set the stage for Bradshaw's appearance, it is clear that his role was the foundational one for all that followed. His analytical mind produced a rigorous pattern of thinking about the structure of books, and his selfless desire to promote the field caused him to be generous in assisting other scholars. Indeed, the great monuments of the first half century of the bibliographical revolution have other names on their title pages, but Bradshaw's influence usually underlies them. The first such monument was William Blades's Life and Typography of William Caxton, 1861-63 many details in which derived directly or indirectly from Bradshaw, 
as his letters to Blades in the late 1850s and 1860s show. Bradshaw's catalytic role is illustrated by other correspondence as well, such as his letters to Holtrop and Campbell of the Royal Library at The Hague. Holtrop, like Blades, began his incunable studies earlier than Bradshaw, the first fascicle of his work on the Low Countries appearing in 1856, and Bradshaw called him my master. But Bradshaw showed his own mastery in his letters, for there he was the instructor, not the pupil. And some indication of Holtrop and Campbell's recognition of his leadership is afforded by a letter of Campbell's to G.W. Prothero, Bradshaw's biographer. Mr. Bradshaw, Campbell said, was much more exact than we in his descriptions, giving items we did not think necessary to be given or which we did not dream of. This comment points to the heart of what makes Bradshaw important, his ability to see physical details in terms of their analytical usefulness. It is his method that writers on him have emphasized. Francis Jenkinson, in his preface to Bradshaw's collected papers, regarded those papers as specimens of method. And Paul Needham, a century later, entitled his essay, which is the best discussion of Bradshaw yet written, The Bradshaw Method, and stressed the permanent value of what he called the conceptual basis of Bradshaw's work. In 1892, six years after Bradshaw's death, a small group of scholars interested in early printing joined together to form the Bibliographical Society. Although this organization was destined to have its major influence on the study of 16th and 17th century books, not incunables, the impulse to recognize and promote bibliography as a distinct scholarly field emerged from a growing understanding of the need for a methodical approach to the study of books and thus reflected the climate of thought that Bradshaw had fostered. Bradshaw's name did not figure prominently in the inaugural address of the society's first president, W.A. Coppinger, but Coppinger did focus on the need for system or method. He ridiculed the, quote, poetic sentiment hanging around the collations of our departed friend Dibden and urged the adoption of definite scientific order and method in the description of incunables. The day of generalities has passed away, he said, and the age requires that exactitude which can only be attained by the study of minute details. Coppinger's references to exact science echo Bradshaw's to natural history, and the idea that bibliography should aspire to the status of science became a thread linking many later discussions. What was meant, of course, is not that the physical sciences are analogous in every respect to the study of human artifacts, but simply that the latter should rest on the same scholarly traits as the former, the disinterested pursuit of truth through the careful drawing of inferences from extensive observation. If the founding of the Bibliographical Society shows in a general way the influence of Bradshaw's thinking, his method is displayed in more detailed fashion in the best English and German bibliographical work on Incunabula at the turn of the century, notably in Robert Proctor's Index and A.W. Pollard's first volume of the British Museum Incunable Catalogue. It was also through Proctor that the English approach to incunable study came to influence the German school. Although Paul Schwenke's similar handling of type identification in his 1896 work on the Weinreich Press may or may not have been influenced by Proctor, it seems clear that Proctor's example was a major force behind the work of others in the group, such as Conrad Habler. The British tradition of analytical bibliography can be seen as having moved through three periods. The first, ending in 1908, with the first volume of the British Museum Incunable Catalog. This volume serves as a milestone because it was the first fruit of a project to describe a great collection on an imposing scale and with a methodology focusing on printing history 
and thus building on a half century of intensive work following Bradshaw and Blades. It implied, in other words, that the time had come when the analytical tools available were adequate to the construction of a great monument. And this sense underlies Pollard's masterly introduction, which shows a particular consciousness of its own historical moment. Pollard's account of the points to be considered in attempting to determine the chronology of undated books is not only a convenient summary of where bibliographical analysis then stood, but also a gloss on the phrase, the types and habits of each printer in the most famous of Bradshaw's natural history passages, which Pollard quotes before proceeding. What Bradshaw's phrase concisely captures is a fundamental fact about the analysis of artifacts, that attention must be paid not simply to the physical features that are directly observable, but also to the human actions that produced those features. Pollard enumerated three factors that bibli bibliographers following Bradshaw must deal with, printer's copy, personality, and materials. When books by individual printers are gathered together and these categories of evidence examined, Pollard says, the knowledge which may be gained of the inner working of a printing office is often surprising. This remark is important for suggesting that bibliographical analysis is a form of historical recovery and that part of the story of how a book was produced can be learned from the book itself. It is clear from Pollard's introduction and from the catalog it accompanied that by 1908, the physical analysis of early printing had reached a point of considerable sophistication. Its essential grounding in book structure was recognized along with the usefulness of a formulaic means of recording that structure, the identification of individual fonts of printing type through measurement and detailed observation was accepted as a means of attributing books to particular printers, and the close examination of variations in printers' characteristic practices was understood to be a key to chronological ordering. The amount of useful work that had been accomplished was impressive, but equally significant was the development of a bibliographical attitude of mind. When Pollard asserted the rashness of assuming, through an argument he said was often employed by literary students, that the apparent correction of errors pointed to a later date, he was in fact noting the primacy of physical analysis for understanding textual development and was reflecting on the necessity for learning how to let books speak to us in ways other than through the words they contain. Work on 15th century books, of course, continued in the years that followed, but the reason for taking this moment as the dividing point between two periods of bibliographical activity is the conjunction in two consecutive years of two landmark books. One, the British Museum catalog, a summation of what had gone before, and the other, Shakespeare folios and quartos, 1909, an indication of what was to come. The transition is symbolized by the fact that the same man, Pollard, was responsible for both books. The Shakespeare book marked the turn to Elizabethan and Jacobean drama as the field in which the most innovative bibliographical analysis was to take place over the ensuing 60 years. It was the first monument of what came to be called the new bibliography. New not only because of its focus on 16th and 17th century books, but also because the chief motivation of its practitioners was to elucidate textual history. Some of the earlier incunabulists were not unmindful of the connections between a book's text and its physical structure. But in general, these scholars concentrated on identifying and dating the work of individual printers, and their analysis of printers' habits was not to any great extent applied to questions of textual authority. The pioneers of the new bibliography, on the other hand, were dealing with the primary sources for one of the richest of all outpourings of literary expression, Renaissance English drama, 
and for them the pursuit of printing history was a means for gaining information that would help them make textual decisions in preparing scholarly editions. Indeed, the new bibliography is usually considered to be synonymous with the recognition that literary study cannot ignore the physical evidence of the passage of texts through the printing process. Pollard's preface to his 1909 book displays his textual emphasis by talking about his disagreement with Sidney Lee, whom he denominates the head of the bibliographical pessimists. While Lee, according to Pollard, seemed to have piracy on the brain, Pollard considered the printers, as a rule, to have been honest men and classified only five Shakespearean quartos as textually suspect. According to F.P. Wilson, the perceptive historian of the early years of the new bibliography, Pollard's book was, in his words, epoch-making because its distinction between good and bad quartos effectively discredited the old attitude of damning wholesale the folio and all the quartos. And Pollard's means of supporting his argument were as epoch-making as the conclusion. Not only did he provide careful discussions of the publishing conditions of Shakespeare's time, but he also showed how physical evidence in the books helps one to understand the circumstances of their production. One chapter brilliantly recounts the first major demonstration of the new bibliography, the discovery that a group of nine quartos bearing various imprints and dates were all printed for Thomas Pavier in 1619. Although Pollard had questioned these quartos in 1906, the conclusive account of their false dates was published in 1908 by W.W. W. Gregg, who used the evidence of standing type and paper stock. Uh, in another chapter on the printing of the first folio, Pollard makes two observations that foreshadow two of the most used techniques of bibliographical analysis. Having studied typographical peculiarities in the running titles, he was able to say, these headlines were not set up afresh for each page, but were either transferred from form to form or were left in the form and the new letterpress placed below them. He then used the erroneous reappearances of a particular running title as what he called a rather pretty proof that Jaggard's men printed the comedies two pages at a time beginning from the inside of the choir. The first of these points is the basis for using headlines to trace the order of printing of individual forms. The second set the stage for recognizing that typesetting as well as printing could have proceeded by form rather than in the numerical order of the pages. Pollard says explicitly that he is trying to understand the typographical habits of Jaggard's office. Habits is the word Bradshaw had also used, and we can be sure that Bradshaw would have delighted in the kind of habit Pollard was beginning to uncover. Not only the habits of typographical arrangement that show up on the printed pages, but also the habits of behavior, the shop routines that produced those public arrangements. The direction that the new bibliography would take is suggested here from the stasis of the printed page to the kinetics of the shop. The role of such study in textual work illustrated in Pollard's book was set forth even more clearly in the next monument of the new bibliography, written only four years later and published in 1914, R.B. McCarrow's Notes on Bibliographical Evidence for Literary Students and Editors of English Works of the 16th and 17th Centuries. This hundred-page study was founded on the belief, stated in the heading of the opening section, that modern editorial methods demand some bibliographical knowledge, and on the recognition, stated in the opening sentence, that even scholars in other respects well-equipped often display a curious ignorance of the most elementary facts of the mechanical side of book production. The book conveniently drew together those facts, such as they were known to be at that time, but it is not a history of printing. It is a manual showing how such facts can be made use of in literary study. 
The emphasis is on process, as when Maccaro says in the introductory chapter that literary students should view a book, quote, not as a unit, but as an assemblage of parts, each of which is the result of a clearly apprehended series of processes. What is just as important for his readers as his discussions of the uses to which physical details can be put is the attitude of mind that he exhibits throughout. The reader begins to learn by observing Maccaro's way of handling detail after detail what it means, in his words, to be constantly on the watch for those little pieces of evidence which are supplied by the actual form and makeup of a book. Not only does Maccaro show what a bibliographical approach to printed texts consists of, he also conveys the sense of excitement that accompanies bibliographical, like all other, discoveries. <coughs> In the fine penultimate paragraph of his introductory chapter, he notes, with almost every new book we take up, we are in new country, unexplored and trackless. And bibliography is consequently one of the most absorbing of all forms of historical activity. The same spirit continues to be present in the expanded version of Maccaro's book, published in 1927 as an introduction to bibliography for literary students, which has unquestionably been the most widely read and influential book about analytical bibliography ever written. The historical knowledge within which bibliographical analysis must operate changes over the years, and from that point of view, Maccaro's book is now dated. But as an expression of the quality of mind required for reading artifacts, as well as of the satisfactions that can result, his book remains fresh and has never been surpassed. By 1914, then, the three men whose names have become synonymous with the new bibliography, Pollard, Gregg, and Maccaro, had made major contributions. Over the next several decades, each of them continued to be productive, but it was Gregg whose periodic overviews addressed to the Bibliographical Society served to articulate the outlook of the new bibliography. His first major statement, entitled what is bibliography, was delivered before the society in 1912 and remains valuable today for its sensible distinctions. Although he praised Bradshaw and his followers, Gregg was actually shifting the emphasis from that of much of their work and in effect sketched the agenda for a new era. Bibliography, he said, is not yet a satisfactory science for too much emphasis has been placed on description, and insofar as a science is merely descriptive, it is sterile. He was instead concerned with analysis, specifically the analysis of physical evidence that bears on textual history. His textual orientation was proclaimed in his formal definition of what he called critical bibliography the science of the material transmission of literary texts. He recognized that editing requires taste and additional knowledge, but he believed that, quote, bibliographical investigation forms three quarters of textual criticism. In his emphasis on text, he said nothing explicitly about the contribution to printing history that bibliographical analysis can make. He no doubt took this point for granted, but by subsuming it under the investigation of textual history, he was contributing at the very outset to what would become an inaccurate stereotyped view of analytical bibliography as simply a tool of textual criticism. His comments also make clear that he limited bibliography to a study of the production of books. In rejecting the investigation of book plates, as, in his words, a bastard branch of the subject, he announced, bibliography only concerns itself with processes that leave their mark on the character of the finished product. Here he was concisely stating the position of most of the persons who have thought of themselves as analytical bibliographers ever since. 
The fact that book plates represent a category of physical evidence that is now eagerly studied for what it reveals about the post-production history of books does not, of course, invalidate Greg's decision to focus on an earlier period in the life history of each book. Whether or not both should be called bibliography is a relatively trivial concern, but it is understandable why Greg, speaking in 1912 as an advocate for an innovative and little understood approach, wished to be firm on the matter. Two decades later, Gregg elaborated his position in a pair of addresses delivered during his term as president of the Bibliographical Society. In the first of them, entitled The Present Position of Bibliography, 1930, he again contrasted the recording of data with the probing for significance. Whether it is also a science is a question he turned to advantage, refusing to let it become a mere matter of definition. In the 1912 paper, he had sensibly said, calling recent bibliography a science may be accepted as indicating a certain truth if one takes a science to be a process by which we coordinate facts and trace the operation of constant causes using a rigorous method for the investigation and interpretation of fresh evidence. These words form the basis for his claim in the 1930 address that as a method of discovery, bibliography is thoroughly scientific. Gregg's understanding of how an historical pursuit could be scientific turned the question of whether bibliography is a science into a means of further clarifying the new direction that bibliography had taken. His other presidential address, Bibliography and Apologia, 1932, in which bibliography is called the fundamental instrument of research, contains the notoriously provocative statement that the bibliographer is concerned with written or printed signs, quote, merely as arbitrary marks. Their meaning, he said, is no business of his. This comment has often been cited out of context, but if read as part of Greg's whole argument, it is not unreasonable. He was trying, first of all, to distinguish the listing of books on particular subjects, the popular conception of bibliography, from the study of physical evidence. Even more significantly, he also wished to isolate the role of physical analysis from the other ingredients of textual criticism, ingredients that do involve historical and literary knowledge and judgment. The key point that he wished to communicate was that textual conclusions reached by these other means would be suspect if they contradicted any facts that could be established through examination of the material objects carrying the texts. He was aware that in his effort to emphasize this idea, he rather overstated the case, for he acknowledged in practice the meaning of a text often enables us to arrive by a shortcut at results that could only be laboriously or not at all achieved by strictly bibliographical methods. But in order to understand how various approaches work together, it is crucial, he felt, to know what each one, strictly conceived, consists of. Greg's fourth essay in this sequence, his contribution to the 1945 volume celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Bibliographical Society, was notable for the prominence given to the idea of the life history of books, an idea he had discussed with some eloquence in the 1932 paper where he spoke of a text as a living organism that changes through the ages and proclaimed that bibliography treats each step in the history of the text as potentially of equal importance. By 1945, he had placed this concept into his basic definition of the field, the object of bibliographical study, he said, is to reconstruct for each particular book the history of its life, to make it reveal its most in, in its most intimate detail the story of its birth and adventures as the material vehicle of the living word. Just as textual criticism must employ bibliography, so a study of the life history of texts must include a knowledge of the life history of the books that transmitted them. 
although Greg's own interest was in the earliest stages of these histories, in the texts and books relevant to understanding authors' intentions, his rigorous mind recognized that the field was logically broader, and he provided it with a vision that encompasses its most recent developments. In these four essays, Greg was avowedly serving as a publicist, and the field is fortunate in having had someone with his clarity of thought and expression to serve this function during a critical period. He was keenly aware of the historical significance of what he called the exhilarating adventure that he had participated in, as shown by his repeated contrasts between the bibliographical work done before and after the turn of the century. By the time of the 1945 Jubilee volume, the movement had accomplished enough to require a long assessment from F.P. Wilson, but this summing up also coincidentally marked a shift of leadership in the field. Greg's essay ends with a reference to, quote, interesting work from America, particularly articles by Fredson Bowers and Charlton Hinman. And thus his retrospect closes with an accurate glimpse of the future. The two people Greg named turned out to be the leaders of an upsurge of work in analytical bibliography after World War II. Hinman had been Bowers' student at this university just before America's entrance into the war, and both had published articles on headline analysis before their service in the United States Navy began. <clears throat> when Bowers returned to Virginia after the war, he quickly established himself as a major force in the field, not only through a flurry of articles and a landmark book, Principles of Bibliographical Description, but also through the establishment in 1948 of a journal, the annual Studies in Bibliography. Although Studies was open to all kinds of work in book history, Bowers' own interests caused the journal to become particularly associated with new developments in analytical bibliography set forth in what amounted to a new genre of bibliographical writing involving the detailed massing of evidence for distinguishing the work of different compositors and for tracing the succession of forms through the press. Recognition of Bowers as the leader of a movement came with remarkable speed and shows up even in reviews of the first volume of studies. In one, Greg spoke of the University of Virginia as the center of a very live and extended school of bibliography in all its aspects, not least in these highly technical ones that a small band of American scholars have made peculiarly their own. This kind of bibliographical work was not limited to Virginia, of course, and such articles did appear in journals other than studies, but there is no doubt that Bowers and his journal were the primary stimulators of a scholarly phenomenon, a major outburst of bibliographical analysis lasting for a quarter century and producing a massive literature. Although Bowers himself wrote some significant articles of this kind, his more influential role was as a catalyst and publicist for the field, most notably in his Rosenbach and Sanders lectures. Like Gregg, Bowers concentrated on the role of bibliography in textual criticism and thus in literary criticism. But in contrast to Gregg's generally reserved and cautious style of advocacy, Bowers was an aggressive salesman who enveloped his message in exuberant prolixity. He was unquestionably successful in making the field more widely known to literary scholars in general, but his style coupled no doubt with the enthusiastic and confident tone of many of the articles that were seen as reflecting his school caused resistance in some people. An awareness of this situation was probably responsible, at least in part, for Bowers's decision to, vote, to devote his 1959 Lyle lectures to an explanation of how physical evidence can be used and what levels of certainty can be attached to the results. He wished to confront the limitations of inductive investigation 
and show its validity in spite of the tentativeness that must attach to some of its conclusions. He was thus directly addressing the central criticism that can be made of analytical bibliography and performing a basic service for the field by showing how rigorous logic can be applied to a wide array of bibliographical situations. The book has not, however, been regarded as a standard textbook, and one reason is perhaps its somewhat confrontational tone. One sentence in the opening lecture that caused a stir at the time was, when bibliographical and critical judgment clash, the critic must accept the bibliographical findings and somehow come to terms with them. What Bowers obviously meant is no different from what Gregg had said before him, but the manner of expression was not likely to win converts to the cause. There is also overstatement in such phrases as bibliographical thinking, causing some readers to object that there is no peculiarly bibliographical form of clear reasoning. Bowers was of course aware that he was not describing a new kind of logic, but rather was showing how bibliographical evidence could be handled in a way that conformed to traditional concepts of logical argument. What more people needed instruction in was how to recognize physical evidence that had potential significance for revealing the production process. But Bowers' subject, as he acknowledged in his foreword, was method alone. His purpose was not to offer a systematic explanation of the techniques of bibliographical analysis. That task was in fact accomplished at about the same time in the great two-volume work that Hinman had published the year before, the printing and proofreading of the first folio of Shakespeare, 1963. Though the book was not intended as a textbook, the first volume was entitled Needs, Tools, Methods. And in the course of setting forth the evidence found in the folio, it inevitably offers an exposition of the arsenal of techniques, some originating with Hinman himself, available for attacking 16th and 17th century books. He then used the amassed evidence in the second volume to make a choir-by-choir -choir analysis of the production history of the folio dealing with the setting, proofreading, press work, and distribution of each section. The book is thus the most extensive explanation of how analytical bibliography works and the most sustained piece of such analysis that we have. It does not deal explicitly with the kind of rationale that Bowers treated, except to say at the outset that it was meant to demonstrate to literary students how bibliographical analysis can make clear the essential nature of various textual phenomena which without its aid would not be understandable. His book is far greater than Bowers's, but together they form the two complementary monuments of the flourishing post-war period of bibliographical analysis. The major sign that the era of the new bibliography was nearing its end arrived only five years after Bowers's book in the form of D.F. Mackenzie's Printers of the Mind, which appeared in Bowers's own journal in 1969. This momentous article, the most substantial criticism of analytical bibliography up to that time, served to focus the various doubts and cautions that had been expressed over the previous three decades. As early as 1941, two American scholars, Madeleine Doran and R.C. Bald, issued warnings about the slipperiness of bibliographical evidence. Both had considerable sympathy with the new bibliography and were therefore all the more desirous of keeping it on a rigorous path. Over the decade that followed, as enthusiasm for analytical bibliography grew, those who approached it warily were occasionally more blunt in their skepticism. In 1957, for example, Herbert Davis was understanding but firm in noting, quote, dangers in building up arguments based on what must be partly conjectural accounts of what actually took place in the printing house. And Leo Kirschbaum was less open to the potential of analytical bibliography, which he called 
a servant that tends to act like a tyrant. Mackenzie's famous essay tied together all these strands. Its technique was to examine some of the established assumptions of analytical bibliographers in the light of information derived from printers' records, and in each case the assumptions were found to be far too simplistic to deal with the complex variables that existed in actual printing shops. The great variations in the sizes of editions and in the amount of work that compositors and pressmen accomplished in a given time, for example, made the notion of norms meaningless. And the idea that a shop's economy required a balance between the man hours expended on the composition of a book and those on its press work, an idea essential to many of the published analyses of individual books, was invalidated by a recognition that a shop's compositors and pressmen were constantly working on more than one printing job at a time. Mackenzie then showed, with further examples from printers' records, how some of the standard techniques of analysis appear questionable in the context of concurrent printing. All this he considered a demonstration of the unsoundness of inductive reasoning, and he concluded, Bibliography might grow the more securely if we followed the hypothetico-deductive method in which the rigorous testing of inductive inferences by adducing contrary particulars serves to impose a sound curb on premature generalizations. There is no question that this cautionary advice was timely, for too many of the analytical articles had displayed, in Mackenzie's words, the premature elevation of particular observations to the status of general truths. Any field can benefit from a carefully phrased and knowledgeably detailed reminder of the requirements of rigorous thinking, and Mackenzie's piece was impressive in its clarity and learning. But it did have a troubling flaw. In contrast to its subtle exposition of the risks inherent in deriving historical facts from the inductive process of observing physical evidence, it seemed to imply that finding historical truth in printer's records or other external documents was a straightforward matter. Repeatedly, the essay distinguished the certainty obtainable by using documentary statements about printing from the uncertainty of conclusions based on the printed items themselves. He said, for example, the Boyer ledgers offer information with a certitude unparalleled in any purely inferential construction. He further used the term primary evidence or primary documentation to mean printer's archives and the like. A revealing slip since there was no need to attempt to displace surviving printed matter from its obvious centrality in order to offer a warning about the dangers of inductive reasoning. And in any case, primary evidence, whatever it turned out to be, is not unambiguous simply because it is primary. Whether or not Mackenzie meant to discourage people from pursuing analytical bibliography, he admitted to a feeling of mild despondency, his words, about its prospects, believing that the results are not likely to be commensurate with the labors involved. And many of his readers did think he was calling for an end to such invest <coughs> investigations. Even Bowers said, Mackenzie comes perilously close to recommending that we scrap analytical bibliography altogether. There has, in fact, been less analytical work since 1970, but Mackenzie's essay is only partly responsible. It fell on particularly receptive ears because there was already beginning to be a turn in literary studies away from an interest in authors' intentions and toward a concern with the social production and reception of literature. Although the new bibliography was not inherently tied to the study of authorial intention, it had been developed by editors who focused on such intention, and its techniques lost favor along with intention. More recent criticisms of analytical bibliography have appeared, 
but with the notable exception of Peter Blaney's, they have been far less penetrating and comprehensive than Mackenzie's, which remains the key document of a major turning point in textual criticism and bibliographical study. It is not surprising that Mackenzie went on to write about what he called the sociology of texts, in which the physical characteristics of the objects conveying texts are examined for their cultural implications, for the meanings that authors, publishers, and readers imputed to them. Mackenzie's role as a leader in developing this field is analogous to Pollard's in helping to create the new bibliography 60 years earlier. Each had participated prominently in what went before, and each lent authority to a major new approach. By now, there is a sizable and lively body of writing dealing with book design as a textual matter, as an integral part of what is placed before readers to be read. Instead of looking at physical details for hidden clues to the manufacturing process, <clears throat> scholars in this field focus on the elements of design meant to be noticed by readers and always in fact noticed by them in some fashion, whether or not with the intended effect. This pursuit fits naturally into the larger framework of what is now called the history of the book, the endeavor which has flourished since the appearance of Fevre and Martin's L'Apparition du Livre in 1958 to trace the social consequences of book production and distribution. To those schooled on the new bibliography, the social study of book design hardly seems to be bibliography at all. But what one calls it is less important than the fact that it, like the new bibliography, is a way of reading the physical evidence in books to learn something about the past. It is a welcome development because, again like the new bibliography, it directs attention to a neglected body of evidence. And the enthusiasm with which it is being pursued, and with far more publicity than the new bibliography ever received, is similarly resulting in the, rigid, in the rapid accumulation of insights, some of which will survive repeated testing. But if the kind of work associated with the new bibliography is now viewed with less enthusiasm, it is not discredited nor can it be as long as there are books to be examined. However great the challenges it poses, there is no way to avoid dealing with them. The artifacts carrying verbal texts constitute an enormous reservoir of information about the past, quite apart from the meanings of the words themselves. And those who are interested in learning about the past will persist in exploring every conceivable way of extracting that information. Thank you.